This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. So why do seagulls live near the sea? Because if they live near the bay, they'd be bagels. Welcome to Wings and Things, where you'll find real answers to real questions about everything you want to know about pet birds. Care, feeding, bird products, travel, and more. Everything to make your frequent flyer a happy camper. From parrots to parakeets, cockatiels to cockatoos, you'll have a bird's eye view of everything there is to know about your fun, feathered friends. So, spread your wings and get ready to fly on Wings and Things. Welcome to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Robin Chawokas. I'm on the road in Austin, Texas today. Today, we're going to visit with an aviculturist, Rick Jordan. Rick has been working with birds for 25 years. He's currently the chair of the CITES Committee for the American Federation of Aviculture and is also a member of the AFA Education Committee. Rick is the principal author of the first Fundamentals of Aviculture online education course offered by the AFA. Here in Austin, Rick is the co-owner of Hill Country Aviaries. Today I'll be asking Rick to share his vast knowledge of aviculture with us. We'll be right back after these messages. Sitting on a branch overlooking the parking lot, the pigeons watched as a Mercedes pulled in below them. What do you think, one bird said to the other. Should we put a deposit on that car? Stay perched. Wings and Things will be soaring back right after these messages. What if you could protect the life of your cat with something so simple and affordable that you already use every day? Get ready for the evolution of kitty litter. It's Kitty Litter. Along with all the features you've come to expect from your kitty litter, Pretty Litter's patented and scientific formula will also monitor your cat's health and detect illnesses early while providing industry-leading odor control. Two kitty litters, same cat, same price. But there's one important difference. Pretty Litter reacts to your cat's waste by detecting health issues simply by changing color. And the key is that Pretty Litter detects these issues before your cat shows symptoms of physical illness or pain, likely saving you major dollars in vet bills while protecting the health of your cat. What do you think, little guy? Ready to switch litter? Pretty Litter. Colorful insight into your cat's health. Go to prettylittercats.com forward slash cat 101 or use coupon code cat 101 to get 20% off your first subscription order. Let's talk pets on petliferadio.com. A Frenchman walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The bartender asks, where did you get that thing? The parrot replies, in France. There are millions of them. Don't have a canary. Wings and Things is back. Welcome back to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. Hi, Rick. How are you? Fine, Robin. Great to be here. It's great to be here in Austin with you, and, and I've been able to go around your facility and see some of the amazing birds that you have here. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I got interested in birds very young, about the age of seven, actually, when I got my first budgie. I'm from Pennsylvania originally. Uh, It's where I was raised until I joined the military uh, in my 20s. But um, that start in aviculture, just having a pet parakeet, uh, led to an an entire lifetime of interest in birds. And I started gathering more birds and taking more birds in until finally I had a breeding collection and 
moved to Texas where we had plenty of space to spread it out, and now we're one of the larger uh, commercial breeding facilities in the United States. That's wonderful. So now, Rick, some of your, at your facility here, you have birds outside, is that correct? Most of them live outside. Actually, all of them live outside. That's okay. correct. And it, I mean, the weather here is perfect for that. It can get pretty cold in the winter, but um, contrary to popular belief, parrots are actually pretty tough, and they can take cold weather. We were down to six degrees this year at oh one my. point for one night. But um, the good thing about Texas weather is it'll be cold at one night and it'll be in the 70s the next day. And if, if the birds are out all year long, they become acclimatized to the weather changes and they're fine. They seem to do fine. That's a really important point for our listeners. One of the things we've talked about um, before is temperature changes for birds and that it can be very dangerous. And I, I, what I try to get people to think about is that birds are much more resilient than we give them credit for. Absolutely. And a lot of people think of parrots as all being tropical birds, and it's absolutely not the truth. There are a lot of birds that are actually from really cold mountainous regions where it gets a lot colder than it does in Texas, and it stays colder for long periods. I mean, there are actually parrots from Tibet mm -hmm. and from the mountains and the mountains of Mexico. Right, right. And kias, for example, kias are not, you know, owned by many individuals, but um, kias are our cold weather bird, are they not? Oh, completely. They love the snow. They love the ice. I don't think they do well in hot weather regions, actually. Right. In fact, you know, I was discussing this with a, a fellow um, bird person the other day, and she was saying that a lot of times kias, when they end up in warmer climates, they don't do as well. And, you know, as far as their flight is concerned, it's not as good because they get, I mean, it's like almost like a heat stroke situation for them. I've seen some some of them struggling in their environment in warmer region zoos and stuff. Right. I, I think I personally believe that if a species is from a mountainous region where it's where it was born and the uh, it needs to be in a cold region, that it should probably be kept in those regions even in aviculture. Right. So Rick, that brings up a good point. Aviculture. How would you define an aviculturist? Oh, that's a tough question. To me, an aviculturist is anybody who keeps or breeds or takes care of birds. Birds in general, any bird. It's kind of hard to define, and a lot of people argue, you know, that you can't be an aviculturist unless you're a breeder, which is absolutely not true, because if you have a house plant, even though you're not a horticulturist, you're practicing horticulture. Right. So to me, if you have a pet bird in a cage, and you're taking care of it, and you've done your, your research, and you know the different things that you're doing properly with your bird to sustain its life, then you're practicing aviculture. So an aviculturist, to me, can be anybody that keeps or, or takes care of a bird. And so, in your opinion, are there minimum standards for for basic husbandry and, and things like that with birds as an aviculturist? Well, you know... I'm not the kind of person that likes to tell people how to take care of their bird, but I like to see all birds that are kept in captivity kept in a healthy environment. And I think that's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. is it has to be a healthy environment. You shouldn't keep any captive animal in an environment where they're subject to illness or um, disease or where they would be harmed. And I think the same basic principles should apply to anybody that keeps a pet bird, that it should be in a clean environment, it should be safe, a safe environment, and um, that's really all we can ask from somebody that keeps a pet bird. Mm -hmm. I, and I think that's important. That's one of the things that Barbara and I talk about a lot is safety first. You know, whether you're doing training, whether you're doing enrichment, whether it's just basic husbandry, those are, the safety is what you need to look at first. And, and they're not, not to say you should baby your birds or treat them, you know, like the China doll. But you still need to make sure that safety, that basic safety is happening no matter, you know, whether you have one bird or a hundred. That's right, because they don't, they don't know any better. And if you put them in an unsafe environment, something's going to happen, period. Right, right. And, and that also brings up the point that there's always that bird that's going to get 
have something go wrong regardless of how safe you try there to be. There does seem to be birds that no matter how safe you make the environment, they're going to figure out some way to get their head stuck or their toenail stuck. Or they're going to be curious enough to put their beak through somewhere where it doesn't belong. It just seems like there's always one in every crowd. Right. And I think for the pet bird community um, or the companion parrot community, that's an important lesson to take home that you do monitor what you're giving your birds and how you know, you're treating them. And even if you think it's the safest toy or device in the world, that you keep a watch on it, that it's not you know, getting frayed if it's something that, that could, uh, like a material or something like that, or that there's not something loose that's going to break off and possibly be ingested. Ingestion is another question I have for you. There's a lot of concern about if you give your parrot something that's, that's not a food item, that ingestion is a huge issue. Have you found that birds will ingest non-food items? I haven't. You know, in 25 years of keeping parrots, I believe that I could count on one hand the number of times a bird swallowed something that shouldn't have been there and that it actually caused them physical harm. Okay. I mean, I know they must swallow pieces of nutshells mm-hmm. and pieces of dirt and, and pieces of rock or things like that, and even pieces of their toy, their wooden toy. But in 25 years and thousands of parrots later, I can count on one hand the number of times that a foreign object has actually caused the bird an issue. That's, that's very interesting because we, I wrestle with that a lot doing the enrichment side of things. You know, if we're giving these, these birds things that are foreign to them that they would not interact with in the wild, is ingestion a big issue? And I feel like these, these birds are intelligent creatures. You know, they're not going to be eating things if they're really not food. You, um, what's the motivation there? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know the motivation. I think sometimes it's an accident. Mm-hmm. I know I know. in several cases I have seen parrots that have actually inhaled something small into the um, trachea and have choked to death. And strangely enough, most of the time it's food. It's like a seed hull mm-hmm. or a seed or a piece of corn or something that they were eating. Okay. But um, I think that if something is swallowed that is going to cause a physical problem, a lot of times it's an accident that didn't mean to swallow it. Okay, interesting. So, Rick, projects, things that you're working on or that you're very interested or invested in, can you share that with us? Well, I'm quite involved with the Spixus Macaw Recovery Project in Brazil and the Lear's Macaw Project in Brazil. Um, I was invited by the government of Brazil to be on the committee, the conservation committee. I do attend the meetings whenever I can afford it, and I try to give input to the zoos in Brazil that are trying to breed those species in captivity Mm -hmm. in Brazil um, for that particular project, for those two particular projects. Um, And recently, I've heard of a project in Cuba. And unfortunately, it's difficult for anybody in the United States to get involved with a project in Cuba because of all the, you know, we've got the, the, the government problems there. But this project for the Cuban Amazon, to me, is very exciting. And I'm going to do my best to see if the State Department of the United States and Fidel Mm -hmm. will lighten up a little bit and look at it as a humanitarian thing where I can go down and teach them how to do some of the hand feeding or the hatching of some of those eggs uh, in the Zapata Swamp area. They are actually doing a a hands-on conservation project for the Cuban Amazon. That's exciting. That's that's really Yeah, I'm exciting. very excited about it. Just um, for some of our listeners that might not be familiar with um, the Cuban Amazon or the Lears or the Spix Macaw, can you explain what the situation... With the Spix, there aren't any. Well, the Spix is extinct in the wild now. Uh, when we first started the recovery program for the Spix, I was not involved for the very first, the very beginning. There was still one male flying in the wild. Right. And since that time, that male has disappeared from the wild. So now it is considered functionally extinct in the wild. Mm-hmm. And um, 
Uh, there may be one or two there that we don't know about, but actually there's an awful lot of people been looking for them, so All I right. highly doubt it. But it is held in captivity, and the captive population is increasing, and they're in the hands of some very, um, I would call, very talented aviculturists. So I think the future of the Spix Macaw is bright, and I think it's also going to be a pilot program because it's going to involve aviculture, which is the keeping and breeding in captivity, and in situ conservation efforts, which is usually field biologists that study birds in the wild. Mm -hmm. It's going to take both sides to reintroduce and get Spixes flying again in the wild. Wonderful. I, I think it'll be something that, that people can get behind. Is there any way the listeners can support these projects? Is Well, the American Federation of Aviculture does have a fund for the Spixus Macaw Project. They do collect money for it. We're kind of like a, um, a contributing, I would call it a contributing organization. We, okay. we would take money, we'll take money in and then we funnel it on to the project. The actual project itself, because it takes place in Brazil, it's hard to donate directly to it. Mm-hmm. So you need to find an organization in the United States or in Europe, wherever you're at, that is funneling money from your country into Brazil in a legal manner to make sure that it gets to the actual project. Okay. Now, with the Cuban Amazons, um, is there any... That's a tough one. We don't have any legal channels yet. Okay. And um, I probably shouldn't even have brought it up, but I find it so exciting that, you know, that here we are, This the Cuban Amazon has been listed on the United States Endangered Species Act since its inception in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. So we're talking a bird that is now listed by the United States and has been as endangered, but yet... Americans can't do anything to help it. Right. So I'm kind of like, I want to pave the road. Mm -hmm. And the guy that's in charge, the veterinarian in charge of the project in Cuba, he is very, he's very educated, very well educated. And he's very into this project because it's his native species. And he is actually the veterinarian for Fidel's personal animals. Wow. So this could actually work out where we can start funneling some help from Americans and Mm -hmm. some money from the United States to get this project up and running in Cuba. And I'm, I'm very excited about it. Oh, it's, uh, I hope we can at some point down the road um, get an update on that and how things are going. So now, how about challenges for you, Rick, as, as an aviculturist? What's the most challenging species? Well, the most challenging species in aviculture for me, um, that would be limiting because I don't have all, all the species. Mm-hmm. I have 70, I, th- I keep about 72 species myself. I would have to say that the one that has given me the most headaches has been the palm cockatoo. Okay. Hand-raising baby palm cockatoos, for some reason, has been very difficult. It, they don't follow the rules for me. They give me a headache. They make me up, stay up at night. They didn't read the manual. No, they didn't read the manual at all. All right. Do you enjoy working with them? I think they're incredible birds. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I, I had the opportunity to see your red-tailed blacks here, which are not the same, but um, are, are an exciting species. Yeah, they're exciting as well, but not near they're as not rare. As yeah, and, and not as challenging. They seem to like once they hatch, they raise. They grow up just like uh, the white cockatoos or the Moluccans do. do, yeah. Okay. Whereas the palm cockatoo, it'll start doing fine for the first five or six weeks, and all of a sudden you've got a super sick baby on your hand, you're up all night, and it's kind of like, you know, a mother would be with a sick baby. Uh-huh. And, I mean, it drains you by the time you're done with all that. Uh-huh. Well, but again, I find oftentimes those species that are the most challenging are the ones that we come to embrace the most once those babies have grown up healthy and normal they are to me the epitome of the pet parrot i mean they don't look like the epitome of a pet parrot Mm -hmm. but they are cool i mean they've got they've got super and i don't i don't anthropomorphize very often but they've got personality Mm -hmm. and they interact with humans in a in a fun way and they kind of draw you in interesting so they, they they're very interesting birds to me well, that's interesting. If you get the chance to interact with a black palm, then, then take it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of our listeners probably haven't had that opportunity. I know I personally have not. 
um, but it is on my list of things to do. I know you're very involved with AFA, Rick, the American Federation of Aviculture. Can you tell us a little bit about the organization and, and the goals of the organization? Well, the American Federation of Aviculture originally was formed back when uh, the quarantine system was just starting to import birds and they had a Newcastle breakout in California, Newcastle's disease. Right. And the USDA at the time didn't know how to handle something like this. They didn't, you know, it was a threat to the poultry industry. It would have caused a complete economic collapse. So there, the way they dealt with it was anytime a Newcastle's, uh, positive Newcastle's test came up within 50 miles of a parrot farm, they euthanized all the parrots on the farms. So the AFA was formed to try to educate the USDA on this disease, how it's transmitted. I mean, it sounds kind of funny. We're educating the government. But what we were doing basically was trying to get them to not put the parrots to sleep until there were positive tests in every one of those parrots or at least in a parrot in the collection. Okay. And we became, after that, an education organization. We just slowly formed from there into the nonprofit that it is today. And we're still doing the same basic thing. When legislation is proposed, that would be a problem for aviculturists or make it like unreasonable for aviculturists so they would not want to keep parrots in that area. The AFA tries to educate the legislators on a better way to do it, an easier way to do it. And we've expanded our education now into the keeping of parrots, the better, you know, better care for parrots and all around education for parrot keepers. We put out a magazine four times a year, a beautiful magazine. It really is. Lots of nice pictures, lots of good articles about not just parrots, but pheasants and pigeons and everything else that's involved in aviculture that we don't give a thought to. If you're a parrot person, you usually have tunnel vision. Right. You know, it's and, very true. And I mean, I find myself doing the same thing. You know, I'd read, if there's a parrot conference beside a pigeon conference, I'm going to go to the parrot conference mm-hmm. because I love parrots and I love to look at them. But really, the, the wide world of aviculture is pretty incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, it definitely is. And I think AFA is a great organization. For those of you that aren't familiar with it, it's worth looking into. There, you have a website, correct, Rick? the AFA does? They have uh, www.afabirds.org where you can join as a member or um, just start reading about the organization. Mm-hmm. There's a store. You can buy beautiful t-shirts done by Wayne Smythe. We have an actual an artist that donates his time and his work and he is incredible with parrot art. I've seen some of his, his work and it is amazing. It's gorgeous. gorgeous if you ever work. have a chance to buy a Wayne Smythe print or a, even a t-shirt with a Wayne Smythe print on it, you should do it. I mean, his work is uh, it's breathtaking. Mm-hmm, definitely. And, and AFA is definitely a, an organization that you might want to become involved with um, as listeners because it is that education piece and it is getting more information about the birds that we're also very passionate about keeping them in our homes you know we have that one bird or two birds and we see that bird and we know about that one but if you can broaden your information about parrots and birds in general this is a great organization to become involved with well rick i'm going to take a break right here and uh we will be right back after these messages Stay perched. Wings and Things will be soaring back right after these messages. Put on a perfectly possum pet party. Having an awesome birthday or adoption day celebration for your four-legged friend? Or just want a fun excuse to throw a fun party with your friends from the dog park? Deck out your party with Molly and Bandit Pet Party Accessories, party products designed specifically for pets. There are wearables, including adjustable pet party hats, bow ties, and tutus. The photoprop kits include funny glasses and hats. 
The party supplies and decorations include coordinating table covers, party banners, cake decorations, and treat bowls, cups, and bags. Everything you need to create great memories and Instagram-worthy photos. They're available in two colorful themes, Tropical and Fireman. It's a dog's life. Celebrate it with Molly and Bandit Pet Party at mollyandbanditpetparty.com slash petlife. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Pet a Frenchman walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The bartender asks, where did you get that thing? The parrot replies, in France. There are millions of them. Don't have a canary. Wings and Things is back. Welcome back to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Robin Shawokas, and I'm here today with Rick Jordan of Hill Country Aviaries in Austin, Texas. So, Rick, here's the question that's that's been burning on my mind. Why breed birds? Hmm. We've got people out there that would vehemently argue that, you know, you should definitely just get a rescue or, you know, rehome a bird. And I, I firmly support that, but there's a necessity to breeding birds. Well... Especially now, because after 1992, the United States passed the Wild Bird Conservation Act, uh, whereas really no, no more parrots can come into the United States from the wild. That was the premise of the law. However, because of some intervention with animal rights groups and a few other people that lobbied the government, that law now includes captive bred birds as well. In other words, if somebody's breeding birds in Europe, uh, as parrot species that somebody here would want as a pet or as a breeder, they can no longer, we can't even bring the, in the captive bred birds. Okay. So the United States is a closed system. What is here is here with very few exceptions. There are some exceptions, but the paperwork, the permits, the money, the amount of time involved to bring in a parrot would probably not benefit. There's only 19 species under the act that are allowed to come in in what I would call a minimum pain, <laughs> pain, paperwork pain. <laughs> least intrusive. Yeah, the least intrusive pain, painful way. Uh, there's 19 species and most of those are birds that, well, all of those are species that are now known to have been bred in captivity for a long time okay. and that there are no more of those species being smuggled out of their countries of origin. You know, it's a really good, the, the intent of the law was very good. Mm-hmm. I think it, that had it been put into effect in the way that it was originally designed, I would have a lot, a lot less problems with it. So back to why do we breed birds? Well, now it's become really important in the United States that we do have breeders. And despite the fact that there are birds in rescues or rehoming organizations where some people could take, you know, that bird in, uh-huh. some people don't want a bird that's been somebody else, right. been somebody else's bird. And I'm not going to argue the point either way. I mean, I can see there are a lot of birds in, or there are birds in these rescue organizations that would make great pets and somebody should get them mm-hmm. and, make, and give them a home. But there are a lot of birds out there that are in rehoming situations that really will not make good pets. Mm-hmm. And they may disrupt your whole, you know, if you've got other pet birds, they may just disrupt everything. They belong in breeder situations. And I firmly believe that if we would just get ourselves together enough that all of the people that take in unwanted birds or, or birds that need rehomed would evaluate those birds and the ones that need to be in a breeding situation went to breeders and the ones that would still make good pets went to pet owners, um, we could better evaluate the market mm-hmm. as to what is needed still for so that people that want a pet bird could have a pet bird. Sure. And I think, too, there's been, you know, a, a stereotype, a breeder stereotype that has gone on for a lot of years. And some of the folks that are doing rescue are, oh, well, it's a breeder, it's a factory, it's this, it's that. And I think 
if there were an evaluation tool, if there were a way to take a look at the birds that come into a rescue and honestly evaluate them. And if everyone were, you know, this is down the road quite a bit at some point, maybe, if people were looking at them with the same evaluation tool to decide, okay, maybe this isn't going to work. Maybe this is a situation where this bird is not going to be able to be rehomed despite, you know, positive reinforcement training, despite, you know, the correct caging and, and um, stimulation and all of that, that maybe this bird needs to go to a breeding situation. Um, it's not necessarily a negative. I think there's a connotation out there of it could be a negative situation. And after seeing your facility, I, you know, absolutely can advocate that your facility is wonderful and there's an opportunity here for birds that are, that appear to be very content, very comfortable, um, and it's not, you know, a factory situation. No. Well, you can't really, a lot of people try to compare raising parrots or the breeding of parrots to puppy mills. Right. And there's really no comparison. A female dog ovulates every nine weeks if she's not bred. And she ovulates and, and needs to be bred within, what, a week of having her litter of puppies? Mm-hmm. Birds are not like that. And there are very few domesticated species of parrots that would even lay eggs enough that you could make a factory out of it. Right. I mean, I'm not going to argue that budgies and cockatiels lay a lot of eggs, and you probably could turn it into a little budgie cockatiel factory. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to do that with umbrella cockatoos. You're not going to do that with double yellowhead Amazons and most of the other pet trade birds. Number one, they have a set breeding season. Mm-hmm. They only ovulate certain months out of the year and they may be different months in different areas of the united states which is actually good right but they're not going to ovulate every time they lay a clutch even if you took the clutch away of eggs they're not going to like always Mm re-clutch they may lay three clutches in a row which is built into them naturally because in the wild you know in a lot of areas monkeys steal the eggs or other birds come in and predate the babies i mean they have to replace clutches so Mm -hmm. it's a natural mechanism But there's no way to turn parrots into a factory. I mean, if you come to my facility in, let's say, October, November, December, January, my nursery might be completely empty. There might Mm -hmm. be one baby in there, some blue and gold macaw that is on a different rhythm than the other ones. But basically, most of my parrots breed in the springtime and in the summer. And they only breed so many times a year, and they only lay a set number of eggs. And that's the reason you need to have a large facility if you're even going to keep a supply of birds. Right. I could never keep a supply of birds because I'm the only one who hand feeds, mm-hmm. which means it would kill me. There's no way I could do it. Right. So I am definitely not chickenizing or, or <laughs> poultryizing parrots. <laughs> no, it, and I think that's an important message for our listeners too, that, that there are very responsible aviculturists and breeders out here that, that are doing the right things, that are, you know, breeding correctly and breeding for the right reasons. Um, and it, it just, that message does need to come across. So that, thank you. I, I appreciate that. If you were to talk to someone who was planning on buying a bird rather than getting a, a rehomed bird, what kind of advice would you give them on choosing a pet bird? Well, the first thing I like to do, if somebody calls me and says, I'm not really sure what kind of bird, but I'd really love to have a parrot. You know, a lot of times they have an idea what they're looking for. Right. And the first thing out of their mouth is always, will it talk? Well, I'm here to tell you, I don't know of any species of parrot that will not mimic. Mm-hmm. They will mimic. It's just, it's natural for them. They mimic. And um, so you can eliminate the will they talk question. Okay. But the next question I have for them is, where do you live? I mean, do you, uh, do you live in a house? Mm-hmm. Do you live in an apartment? Do you live in a noise restricted area? Okay. And do you have a family? You know, do you have small children? Do you have babies on the way? Are you planning to have a family soon? Because with like, like with all pets, your priorities are going to change. Sure. Family always has priority, period. Always. So you need to look at your situation before you choose a parent. Then we'll talk about, well, are you scared of birds? Because if you are, you don't need to have a big bird. Right. Because you can be scared of the beak. 
You know, you might want a little bird, but you know, little birds tweet all day long. You're going to be able to handle that. There's so many questions that go into what's the perfect pet parrot for you. And I would say, if you're planning to get a parrot, you need to go visit people that have parrots or go to a nice pet store, a nice bird store, especially Mm -hmm. a store that has a lot of different species. Walk around, touch the ones that you think are cool to you, Mm -hmm. find out and do, you know, do your investigation of the background of those type of birds. What are the negatives? What are the positives? And come up with a short list of species that you would want mm-hmm. and then see what's available because availability, especially, especially now is going to, it's going to get less and less and less right. because a lot of breeders are getting out of business. And, um, you know, the, the public pressure of don't breed, don't breed, don't breed is, has pushed, I don't know, more than half of the breeders out of business. So I will say to those of you who love parrots in the future, where are you going to get them? <laughs> right. It's, and, and that's, that is true. And I think it's all about research. You know, it's it's knowing what these species are all all about, knowing what these birds, you know, really do, um, not just what they do when they're sitting in that cage, because their behavior may change. And knowing that you may find this bird when you first get it, that's fabulous. And it may change as it gets older, as it ages with hormonal changes. Um, There are all these things that do need to be taken into consideration. And that's with any pet. Absolutely. I remember my sister's first hamster was so sweet when it was young, but man, you couldn't touch it when it got older. (laughs) Evil hamster. (laughs) Evil hamster. Um, And and it's true. And I think, you know, we've all heard the horror stories of, oh, I want the bird because it's this color. Um, You know, it matches my drapes. Yeah, I'm not Um, really into the designer match the bird to your walls kind of thing. Right. That's okay for if you have a really stable bird that you're going to just like have a photo shoot with. mm -hmm. Okay, fine. Match it to the walls. But, you know, that bird has emotional needs. It has physical needs. And um, don't buy the bird to match your furniture. Buy the bird to match your personality. Definitely. And, you know, Barb and I have done shows before on getting a new bird and what it's like to get a new bird and when you're bringing home a new bird. And it it is a lot of work. You know, Mm. if if you're going to provide the adequate care for, not just adequate, good care for a bird, um, you need to really look into what you're getting before you make that choice. I think that's so important. Um, So, Rick, if there are, you know, future aviculturists out there, um, what would you tell them? Well, if there are future aviculturists out there, and I'm talking from the young set, teenagers, mm-hmm. 20s growing up now, it's going to be really tough to find good breeding stock. And it's okay. it's because of the way the system has evolved. You know, I, I sort of got into it in an era where we were bringing in wild-caught birds. Sure. And I'm not saying I'm thankful, but I'm saying I learned a lot. Okay. And I think that the road ahead is going to be really tough. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hard for people to match Um, the right male with the right female. And I think it's because of the structure now where you have rescues holding birds, you have pet stores with birds, you have breeders with birds, and nobody communicates. There's no standard of evaluation. There's no, these are are definitely breeder birds and these should go to breeders. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'd like to see aviculture do. I'd like to see the whole community come together, make some decisions and say, look, if we don't get it together, there won't be umbrella cockatoos in the future, uh, you know, of pet birds. Right. So we have to come up with some way to communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's crucial and it's it's a passion for all of us, you know, whether you be that pet owner or that pet store owner or the, the breeder, the aviculturist, all of us do need to communicate so that, that there is that it's a pocket of, of creatures that are, are here in this country but we really need to to um, maximize their potential by communicating. Absolutely. Don't force a bird that absolutely hates people into a household with a, a family with three children that scream and poke their fingers through the cage and aggravate it. Right. Let the poor bird go back to a breeding situation. Mm-hmm. I've, I, I mean, I have a pretty large facility, and I'm guaranteeing you I've taken in less than a dozen, believe it or not, 
mm-hmm. 20, what, 15 years here in wow. the same spot? Less than a dozen handouts okay. of, of birds that people say, I just can't keep it as a pet anymore. It's too loud. I think I had two cockatoos that were too loud. Okay. They have become wonderful breeders. Mm-hmm. And they raise beautiful babies that are not necessarily screamers. I'm, I'm not convinced that the owners didn't make them screamers. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, you know, after walking around your facility too, I honestly had a little bit of a misconception about, you know, could you go in with breeder birds or, you know, is it okay? And you have birds here at your facility that I've walked into their aviaries and it was a safe situation, you know, so it's, it's not, I don't think it has to be absolutely one or the other. Now it's going to take somebody with experience to evaluate whether a bird should be a breeder or whether it should be a pet. Yeah, I, um, there's a couple that I know of that um, had pet birds that they are using as breeders, um, and it, they've been very successful. Yeah. you know, and it's not it, so they've they've actually shown me that it doesn't have to be that all or nothing kind of situation, um, as long as you're doing it responsibly. So, so any last words uh, for our listeners or. Mm, I can't think of anything unless you ask me something. I certainly can't come up with it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, I know, you know, you've got baby birds that you're feeding and, um, and it's always busy here at a Hill Country Aviaries, but thank you for taking time out um, to talk to us on uh, Wings and Things. And just a few um, upcoming events. I will be at um, the Global Pet Expo in Orlando, March um, 26th and 27th, signing um, Enriching Your Parrot's Life DVDs. On May 16th, the Florida West Coast Avian Society is holding its annual bird mart, and they've asked me to do a little talk, um, you know, during their mart. And then July 17th and 18th, I'll be in New Mexico with uh, Sid Price from Avian Ambassadors for a raptor handling class. So those are just some of the things on the calendar. And some websites we'd like you to visit, goodbirdinc.blogspot.com, goodbirdinc.com, theleatherelves.com, avianenrichment.com um, both avian enrichment and the leather elves um, site have enrichment tips and um, avian enrichment does some great articles on enrichment and then i've started doing a tip of the week um, hopefully it comes out every monday on the leather elves if you just click on tip of the week and then rick has a website it's hillcountryaviaries.com and so for the enrichment tip of the week just keep enrichment simple Obviously, if you have multiple birds, there are challenges, and they're very apparent, you know, that there are challenges here at Hill Country Aviaries, and I'm actually working on a study with Rick on some enrichment things. And so you really need to think in terms of quality and quantity, because they are doable together. It's not one or the other. So it looks like we're out of time, and you can contact us uh, if you have suggestions or questions. Um, You can contact us at robin at petliferadio.com or barbara at petliferadio.com. And as always, please visit www.petliferadio.com. Have a great week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Join us every week on Wings and Things and get a bird's eye view of everything there is to know about pet birds and how to make your frequent flyer a happy camper. Wings and Things, only on PetLifeRadio.com.